Help me understand something, Brett. When you get sentenced to prison, what does that mean? I mean, do, you, do they send you to uh, a, a junior prison so you can kind of get used to being behind bars? Ooh. And, and, uh, Ooh, that's a nice way to put it. Like junior college, so you get used to it. Yeah, so you get used to it. As a matter of fact, there, there is kind of that, that thing you go through. So okay. you're in county jail, and county jail for the real criminals, like me, is the training ground for prison, is what that is. It teaches you how to, and they call it jail. How do you jail? J-A-I-L, all right? So it teaches you the proper etiquette. Okay, so when I when I first got to jail, to county jail, I didn't know any of that stuff. Okay, I didn't know that it's it's all about it doesn't matter who you're talking to, excuse me, please, yes sir, no sir, that type of thing. And that that's the etiquette because it's so crowded that if you don't have manners, everything falls apart. If you don't say excuse me, you know, if you bump into someone by accident, you you better say, "Oh, I'm sorry, excuse me." If you don't say that, you're going to die. You're going to at least get beaten up. So, and it's all about etiquette for that. So, so county jail teaches you how to handle yourself in a proper prison. Okay, and that's the training ground for that. As far as sentencing goes, and that's what we're talking about today with Thomas O'Malley. He's a former federal prosecutor out of North Carolina. Outstanding guy. He truly is. He's retired now. And uh, there was a time <laughs> when he and I would have been on opposite ends of the spectrum. Ah, yes, I remember. <laughs> I, I remember the stories. Yeah, you know, I, he would have been the guy that would have been sentencing me, wanting me to serve a lot of time, and I would have been the guy that would have been hating him the entire time. Now we're buddies. You know, now we're buddies. <laughs> but uh, Thomas is coming in to talk about sentencing because a lot of people really don't understand how federal sentencing guidelines works. And I was one of those guys. Before Thomas talked to me in this interview, I really didn't get it. I thought that there was a big disparity between sentencing. You know, that sometimes you have child predators or child pornography guys. They get a low amount of time. You get these financial cyber criminals get this high amount of time. And it's like, okay, why is a guy that's stealing money serving a lot more time than someone who victimizes a child? Okay. Um, so that we talk about these sentencing guidelines. One of the... Uh, <laughs> And I hate to laugh about it because it's, it's, in one respect, it's funny and in another, it's not. But I remember being in county jail and I was in the federal holding pod. So all the inmates in that pod were federal inmates. Now the feds, they don't give you years. They sentence you in months. Okay. So when you come back, it's like, how much time did you get? And you know, you, that, like I got 75 months before the escape, I ended up with 90 months is what I ended up with. So, you know, you have to sit to figure out, okay, how many years is that? All right. So it's, you know, I, I got seven and a half years. What was funny is you'd have some of these drug guys. Now, here's the thing. When you're talking about people serving time, people being arrested, a lot of the drug offenders, they're not really highly educated. All right. They're not. A lot of these people that are being sentenced to these huge amount of times, they're users, and they started selling drugs to support their habit. And right. they're usually caught up in a conspiracy charge or something like that, and they get a lot of time. 
So you'd have these guys that would go out, you know, these on crack conspiracy charges. And the thing is, is that the way the federal system works is that if you're a new offender, you, you get a lot less time than if you're a repeat offender. Well, a lot of these people that were drug users, they've got a history of felony charges. You know, they've, they've been arrested on crack cocaine as using, but it's enough that they've gotten a felony charge. They've not really served any real time, though. Well, when the feds pick them up, all those felonies count all of a sudden. Okay? Are they stacked? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. So you, you get the guys that go out for sentencing. They would come back with a smile on their face. And you'd yell through the door because at, in that county jail, we were locked in the cell, a six-by-nine cell, four of us in the cell for 23 hours a day. So when the guys came back that afternoon from sentencing, they'd come in happy, the guys who'd just been sentenced. And we'd scream through the door, how much time did you get? And they would say with a big smile on their face, they would say, oh, I did pretty good, man. I only got 240 months. <laughs> and we would sit there like, huh? And they would go to their cell happy. And once they got to their cell, they would divide 240 by 12. And end up with 20 years. And figure out that was 20 years. And then when they got out for that hour that night, they were not happy. <laughs> they, were, they were really upset. I can imagine. You know, I remember this one. His name was Pee Wee. And uh, he, he, was, he decided to fight. He decided that because uh, the feds, they will offer you a, a plea. All right. And I'm going to tell you now, if you're in the federal system, if you don't take the plea, you are an idiot. All right. Beating the feds is almost impossible. It does happen. All right. It does happen. But it's almost impossible. So the feds are going to offer you a plea. And if you've done it, by God, you better take that plea. You had better take it. Or you better know that your defense is rock solid and you're able to beat it. Because if you don't take the plea, they are going to hammer you to the ends of the earth. So Pee Wee had decided not to take the plea. So the day of his trial, I remember, I still remember that, man. The day of his trial, because we were all in the federal pod. The day of his trial, they popped the doors. He was upstairs with us. The day of his trial, they popped the doors downstairs, popped two doors, opened the doors of two cells. And out comes two of his buddies that he had been talking to the entire time leading up to the trial. Two of his buddies that had contacted the prosecutor and decided that they were going to testify against him about everything that Pee Wee had been talking about in the lead up to the trial. Pee Wee sees this. Well, it's too late. Pee Wee's turned down the plea. So Pee Wee goes to court. You know, they load up the, the, the people who are testifying against him first. They load them up, take them onto the court. Then they pop the door, let Pee Wee out. Well, he, he knows what time it is. You know, he knows he's screwed. So he goes to court. Of course, he's convicted. A few weeks later, he goes to sentencing. He gets life plus 30 is hmm. what he gets. And he was a crack dealer. But uh, they sent him to, um, to Florida. Maximum, maximum Penitentiary in Florida is where they sent him to. And I had never uh, 
we were on the same bus together on the way to Atlanta and got to know each other on the bus. And he was, um, that kid was scared to death. I, I call him a kid. He was in his thirties, but he was a guy, he had a lot of small charges and they finally, you know, rounded him up in the feds and he got uh, life plus 30. And I remember talking to that guy and you know, he, he committed crime, but I remember thinking that, um, uh, from my conversation with him, I was like, you know, he's actually a pretty decent guy. And now he's serving life in prison. Thomas comes in and talks to us today about federal sentencing. And uh, I'm thankful that he came in to talk to us. I really am. Is there a guidebook? There that is. Go by? There's a guideline. There's, there, it makes complete logical sense. It really does. And um, before I talked to Thomas and he explained it, I, I had no idea. To me, it seemed like everything was kind of skewed. You know, but after talking to Thomas, it makes, it makes perfect sense. It really does. Um, you know, I talk about these stories I was telling you about and it has nothing to do with, uh, with the federal sentencing. It's just sad that, um, that people receive that much time, but it, it makes perfect sense. Um, at the end of the day, Ken, I, I wish that, um, you know, I needed to serve my time. I did. I think I got the correct sentence. I really did. It was enough to, uh, to, to punish me. It was enough to keep me off the streets from committing crime. It was enough to, um, to change my mind about my, my criminal path and everything else. But, uh, these guys that are getting, you know, life in prison and things like that, I, they did wrong, but I, I don't know what else to do, man. I, I just, yeah, you need to go to prison, but is, is it, is it right to, is it right to remove somebody from society for the rest of their life on that? I don't know, man. I don't know. Maybe in some t some instances it is. Maybe in some some it's not. But uh, I'm very thankful for Thomas O'Malley to come in today and talk to us about federal sentencing and the way it works. Welcome to the Anglerfish Podcast where we navigate the dark waters of our online lives. I'm your host, Brett Johnson. Season one of Anglerfish tells the story of my rise and fall as the original Internet godfather and how I was able to turn from a life of crime to now being focused on protecting people from the type of person I used to be. This second season of the Anglerfish podcast dives into the deepest, darkest waters of our online lives. We'll be discussing fraud and financial cybercrime, sure, but also human trafficking, drugs, cyberbullying, fake news, extremist groups, nation-state attacks, child pornography, and more. Anglerfish believes shedding light on the darkest parts of the Internet helps us to better understand the problems and find solutions instead of living in a world of fear. Welcome to the Anglerfish Podcast. Today on Anglerfish Podcast, we are honored to once again have Thomas O'Malley. Thomas O'Malley joined us on the first season. He's a former federal prosecutor out of North Carolina, and he was kind enough to talk to me about my history of crime. So I've invited Thomas to come back this week to talk about prison sentences. Thomas, how are you doing? How you doing, Brett? Thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. Sure. So, Thomas, for those who, who may not have listened to the first season or may have forgotten that episode, which what episode number is that again? I think it's 14. I think I should, you're right. I should, 14. I should, I should have that, right? <laughs> so it's, it's episode number 14, 
of the first season of Anglerfish. And to hear Thomas say it, it is the best episode of the first season. <laughs> well, I like because you're candid about how you uh, skated on Shadow Crew two-decade prison sentence. Uh, well, yeah. Yeah, I was, I was very lucky. Let's be honest about that. So, you know, uh, if, if you don't mind, if you could remind the audience of, of who you are, give a brief background, and then tell us what you're doing today. So, uh, yeah, I'm a career prosecutor. I spent 37 years uh, prosecuting criminals, five with the state of Florida in Palm Beach County, uh, the remainder with the federal government in the Southern District of Florida for 19 years, and then 14 years in the Western District of North Carolina, based in Charlotte, and we have offices in Statesville, North Carolina, and also Asheville, North Carolina. And I retired uh, last year, January 2019, and um, got restless, and so I started Frozen Pie, which is basically, you know, my perspective as a consumer of how people can protect themselves from criminals, particularly cyber-enabled or cyber criminals, and cyber-enabled crime. Uh, for free, leveraging the consumer rights laws that people have. So that's what I'm doing now. It's a, it's a hobby, and it's uh, less frustrating than golf. Well, and I, I'm going to tell you, Thomas, I mean, you are the guy. You're on LinkedIn all the time. And if there is any person that bitches about what needs to be <laughs> bitched about, <laughs> it is you. <laughs> uh, look, I've been a bull in the China shop my 37 years of prosecutor, and I pissed off a lot of supervisors and, all, <laughs> and uh, you know, quite a few entities that call themselves victims, but, you know, they – the, the big banks and people are victims only because they choose not to spend enough money. They spend enough money to keep their business operations very sure. profitable. And, um, you know, the problem is they treat our identities as uh, chattel and uh, we end up be, being innocent bystanders of their, some of their reckless acts. No, I think you're right. And I'm, I'm going to hand it to you. I mean, what I see you talking about all the time, I mean, when you, uh, when you believe in something, you believe in it. And hats off to you for the work you're doing, for the work you do with Frozen Pie. I advise anyone out there to please visit Frozen Pie, sign up for it. It's it's a great service, and Thomas is just a great human being. Uh, okay, that, so I, pre I appreciate that, Brett, but let's be clear. It's not frozen pizza pie. It's frozen personally identifiable <laughs> information. So there's two I in that pie. That's right. P-I-I, -I, frozen P-I-I, -I, and that's dot... Dot com or dot net, they all land in a different version of the same thing. But I'll have a new website up and running on the dot com in about 60 days. Uh, much easier uh, consumer use uh, user design. Great. And, and like I said, it, for, for Thomas O'Malley, he is this is more than just a business. Thomas believes in this. So please don't hesitate to reach out to him. He, he, is, he is outstanding in what he does. And what he's on here today for is, is the last time I met with Thomas was a few weeks ago in North Carolina, and I brought up this topic of sentencing. A friend of mine had mentioned that he thought that sentencing for cyber criminals, financial cyber criminals, was, was far and away out of line, that the sentences given out were, were too high. <laughs> and I am not of that opinion, but I knew the person to ask would be my friend, former prosecutor Thomas O'Malley. And that's why I wanted you to come on today, Tom, Thomas, so we could talk about you know, sentencing, how that works, the reason we, the reason there's, there's, there seems to be this, this, this kind of conflict in what a lot of people consider more serious crimes compared to financial cyber crimes and stuff like that. So thank you for coming on. I'm happy to be here, Brett. Thank you for having me. 
So I guess, I guess the first question I've got, and, and I want to be fair, I think I got lucky only getting seven and a half years. <laughs> so, I, I'm sure I'm sure Alberto Gonzalez would say the same thing right because he got 20 years he got two 20-year prison sentences right. so and and my my feeling on that I, I think that my seven and a half years I was lucky to get it and I, I I certainly think that I earned it no doubt about it it took me two and a half years behind the fence to start accepting responsibility for my actions and I, I think from my viewpoint now you know, once you accept responsibility, then by God, it's time to pay the piper for that. So I consider those years after that as, as part of that, that punishment of, you know, you, you hurt these people, you lied to these people, you stole money, you, you were, a, I was a despicable guy. Well, your um, seven years, your seven years really involved more than that. It involved double dealing. It did. It certainly and it did. it involved <laughs> escaping from jail. So <laughs> you would have served less than seven years if you hadn't screwed over the, uh, who was it, the Secret Service? It was the Secret Service. It was. And, yeah, I was that you, idiot. And if you would have done some easy time, and I assume was a medium secure facility? You know, I started out, Thomas, low. I started out as, at a camp, at a camp. And then they put me where I needed to go. <laughs> you deserve seven years then. Yeah. Yeah, I certainly did. I mean, there's no doubt. I, I, I won't argue that with anyone. And I probably deserved more than that. <laughs> so. No, no, you're, you're uh so I think we've discussed that before. Uh, I think you're doing more than showing that you've been rehabilitated. I think it's more redemption, which I think is really important. So right. you're giving, going above and beyond what, um, um, is expected of people who are off of supervised release. <laughs> you're right. You're right. And I, I appreciate you saying that. I do. The, the reason I wanted to get that out of the gate is, is the next question that I had, and, and this, this is what my friend over in the UK brought up. He was comparing sentencing for financial people or, you know, these online criminals to sentencing for pedophiles. And what he was pointing out, and I think he was, I honestly think he was wrong on that. Cause what I saw in prison coming in is that basically if someone had pictures of, of underage girls or underage children, that at that point they would get roughly five years. If they were trying to meet, it would be 10 to 15. If they had uh, trafficked in those photographs or uh, uh, having sex with the girls and filming it, it was 25 on up at that point. Uh, but what he was pointing out is that, you know, some of these cyber criminals like, I hate to even say his name because I don't even like him, but Ross Ulbrich gets life in prison. Meanwhile, you've got people that are, that are raping children that are getting far less time than that. And, um, wait a minute. Didn't he try to kill people? Oh yes. That's why right, I said well. I hesitated to even say that. So Ross tried <laughs> for those who don't know, Ross tried to hire hitmen to take out the competition. <laughs> I thought it was also the, to find the, the person who he believed was an informant or got him in trouble with law in the first place. I the guy that. was, uh, so there were evidently two cases. One of the guys that he was trying to have killed was, uh, was holding, was threatening to blackmail Ross, uh, get him in trouble. He thought he was, might've been an informant, everything else. And then, uh, I think one of the other guys was potential competition, whatever the hell you want to call it. But, uh, certainly I, I figured that, that, that what got Ross life in prison was relevant conduct. Am I wrong in saying that or not? Uh, well, usually in those kind of cases, um, well, he, there's a whole bunch of different factors in his because it involved drugs. So there's the table for the amount of time based on the nature and quantity of drugs you right. uh, take care of. And then there's the economic part of it. And there's a table for that. How much financial loss did you cause? Gotcha. And so I think when you add up those two tables, 
uh, it's easy to come up with life because that thing had been going on for quite a while. And both the numbers <laughs> for, for both those was pretty exponential. Over they were what, pretty high. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they, they were pretty high. So and that's, that's, that's what you had mentioned to me when we were talking in North Carolina, that I brought up that same, that same example. And you said, well, it's, it's, you know, the judge doesn't really have much discretion in that because you have to go by the guidelines. So there's a whole history of that. So, so uh, to give some perspective to the conversation here in light of the prior interview you did, um, criminals tend to be very subjective on how much time they think they should do because <laughs> sort of minimize the harm they cause other people, you know, even if it's money, right? right? People feel the life savings of some people and some people whose life savings have been stolen, they kill themselves and then sure. it impacts the following generations, the immediate generations who might have inherited some of that money to, you know, now they're in debt and in the hole. So, uh, but, but before we get into the sentencing guidelines, which came into existence in 1987 federally, and that's, I started prosecuting in 1986. Okay. Uh, that, before that, it was like, you could, as a judge, you could sentence anywhere to probation to the maximum sentence for any crime. Uh, and unless there's some constitutional violations behind the sentencing, like if you did it because of, uh, you know, the gender of the defendant or religion or race, obviously those are constitutional issues, but sure. let's go back. Let's go back even further when I started as a state prosecutor. So when I started as a state prosecutor, I come from law school and my first interaction with the criminal justice system is in a state turns off to 1980. And I was mostly dealing with misdemeanors for the first six months or, you know, less than a year before I made it to felonies. Sure. And when I made it to felonies, it included homicides. And, you know, before I went to, to into that office, I thought if you killed somebody, you're going to do at least 20 years and maybe life imprisonment, right? Right. Uh, guess what? You could do as little as five years. For killing uh, somebody. Yeah, because, you know, there are different degrees of homicide. There's first degree, there's second degree, there's manslaughter, there's culpable negligence. And so, and as part of the system, when you've got an overload of cases, there's charge bargaining going on. And sometimes what would otherwise be a first or second degree murder is downfiled, you know, charge bargaining one or two levels down to a manslaughter. And so when you downfile to a manslaughter, the rain, the mat, not only the maximum, but you know, then again, at the state level, you could sense any from the low end to the high end. But when you charge bargain as a prosecutor, you'd be, you know, taking a case out of first degree murder, uh, maximum life for 25 years without parole, uh, down to, um, you know, range of, I think it was 10 years, maybe for manslaughter, maybe 15. Okay. So, um, but they happen for a lot of reasons. That happened because the volume of cases, you know, there's not enough resources, uh, sure. both in law enforcement and court time and prosecutor time to trial these cases before the jury. There's always, you know, the chance you could lose these cases uh, because, you know, people, it's just really difficult to prove a case beyond a reasonable doubt. And, sure. and um, so there's all that interaction. So I was shocked that you could kill somebody and get out of jail in five years. So, so that goes the whole relative part of like comparing terrorism or these other violent crimes with the nature of the cyber criminal. So with that as background, um, let's talk about sentencing guidelines. So, okay. you know, the courts over time and um, Department of Justice, you know, recognize that these disparities in crime sentences. So like if you were a big drug dealer in Miami, you know, you could be moving 
kilos and kilos of coke and get less than five years, maybe even, you know, two years. Uh, whereas if you did the same crime in Little Rock, Arkansas, you'd be getting a life sentence. Right. And so what they started doing before uh, the guidelines went into effect in the 87 is like historically researched all the cases. So it's all based on data. Okay. Like, you know, the nature of the crime, the harm done, all, you know, dozens and dozens of, of factors. And so they created the sentencing guidelines, federal sentencing guidelines in 1987. And uh, until they were declared unconstitutional, it was mandated that you had to impose a sentence within the guideline range. And there were some few exceptions, upward departures, downward departures. And that was to, I, I, that, so that was to establish fair, fairness across the board. Yeah, so that the okay. defendant, so similarly situated defendants in Miami for a drug case and one in Atlanta and one in Missouri will be looking at the same same sentence or within a range of, of one or two years, the same sentence versus the disparity of the bottom end to the top end. Um, so that was huge. And uh, over time, uh, the Supreme Court and Scalia was paving the way in a few decisions. They said... Uh, they're unconstitutional to the extent that they're mandatory, that the judge's hands are bound with very limited discretion. And now they're simply advisory. Okay. But they still, in practice, uh, treat them as you should follow these guidelines as a judge because the, either the government or the defendant can appeal an abuse of discretion by going either too far below the recommended range or too far above the recommended range. So while, so, the, while the guidelines are just recommended because of that, they're, they're still pretty much in practice then. Oh, they're, they're still the law. Okay. They're just not, they're just not mandatory. Gotcha. Like if, if the guidelines say a range of, they do it in months, but so let's convert the years, the sentence between 15 and 20 years, uh, or usually there's like a three year range depending on how high you go. But, um, you sentence in that range and minor departures either way, you either call them departures or variances, uh, typically aren't going to draw an appeal, at least from the government side of it's too, too low. Um, and so there, so there's some uniform, more uniformity. There's still a range, but it's not the, you know, it's not the entire spectrum from zero to 25 years. Gotcha. And, and just, just to, uh, just to kind of interrupt there, I, when you said they, they sentence in months, I started laughing because, you know, I, I was in prison and I spent about a year in the county jail in the federal uh, holding uh, uh, pod there. And, right. and what, what we would see all the time is that one of these guys would go out for his sentencing day and he would come back happy. And we would ask him, how much time did you get? And he would be like, oh, man, I did pretty good. I only got 240 months. <laughs> Then he would go back to his cell and break down how many years that was. <laughs> I'm sure it wasn't the drug dealers because they know numbers really well, like you know, with eight balls and how much uh, drugs cost. And like, they're really good at math when it involves drugs. And, I, and well, they're pretty sophisticated knowing, uh, you know, months versus years, but uh, yeah, maybe other, other criminals can't do the math so quick. Yeah, it was, some of them were drug dealers. Some of them were, uh, you know, just, uh, and, and a lot of the drug dealers in South Carolina where I was that, you know, they were the street guys and uh, they had, I guess you'd say slung enough dope that they ended up getting a lot of time. They had, they'd had a few minor arrests and it had finally added up to, you know, some major conspiracy charge on their point. 
<laughs> they would, they'd come in really happy. And then the next time they came out of their cell, they'd be the, just, just the saddest people in the world. <laughs> and we're like, did you add that shit up, man? <laughs> maybe, maybe if they were thinking that it was days cause they're used to days in the County jail. Exactly. Exactly. But, um, <laughs> so the good thing about the federal guidelines is they're analyzed every year, right? These uh, stats are kept consistently for every sentence uh, okay. before every judge and they reevaluate it, and sometimes it results in legislation lowering the the, the sentences. Sometimes uh, it, the guidelines are lowered because they feel there's an inequity somewhere. So this has happened, and over the years, particularly the drug sentences that faced you know had mandatory minimums. Those numbers changed to trigger the mandatory minimums. Right. Uh, whether or not something counted as a felony that like double your sentence or sometimes make it mandatory life, depending on the amount of drugs, you know, those are no longer considered felony convictions for purposes of the guidelines. So, so they're constantly, uh, you know, uh, regulating that both as the amendments come out every year and sometimes legislation. And part of it is driven by the fact that they can't, uh, they don't have enough bed space to house. Right. All these prisoners who are getting, you know, decades in jail. So, so let me ask you, and, and you know, I, I agree. I saw the, the, the lack of space in the facilities that I was at as well. But, and, and maybe I'm wrong on this. The, the more you're talking right now, the more I think I am wrong. Because I was, I was kind of of the opinion that there were, when you look at sentencing across different types of crime, that, it just seemed like it was out of order, but the way you're talking right now, it's, it's kind of convincing me that it's not that, you know, there, there's a system there that, okay, it, it may be from drugs to uh, child pornography to stealing money or whatever. But if you look at the system as a whole, it makes logical sense. Am I, am I wrong in thinking that that's exactly what's going on there? Yes. And it sounds to me like your lawyer didn't go over the sentencing guidelines with you when you were sentenced. No, he, he pointed out the graph and he said, you know, you're pleading guilty or you're going to serve a lot of time. And I'm like, I'm pleading okay. guilty. <laughs> right. So, but he's, but he's telling you that in the context of the nature of your crime, right? He's not right. coming with a whole book and flipping to like one, like this is where you'd be at if your crime was homicide. Right. This is, would be your starting point if it involved child trafficking. These are all the specific offense characteristics for each of these. So in developing the guidelines, they've taken all that into account already. So okay. when people say, well, this cyber criminal shouldn't be doing this much time because somebody committed this terror act, killed so many people, that's already taken into account of the nature. Because in fact, if you look at these fr uh, crimes of fraud involving money, the base offense level starts out in a range where you could get probation or right. Less than year, right? right. I think it's like an eight or something. But, you know, with the, the difference happens, like, if you stole only $100,000, first of all, that might even not be enough for federal prosecution to be in the state court. Sure. But let's say you rose to a level that somehow triggered a federal interest in a federal indictment, uh, your sentence is going to be a lot lower than uh, if you stole, like, what, Bernie made off $150 million or however much. Yeah, whatever that was. Some, some yeah, so, I think the damages were $50 billion was what they said at one point. I'm, I'm not sure what he actually uh, got yeah. convicted of. So, uh, in fact, like if you look in some of these categories, like you do losses, there comes a point where as you, so you, guidelines, you've got these, uh, you got the criminal histories and then you have the base of it. Then you have the offense levels and you add various characteristics. Uh, were you a leader? Were you an organizer? 
Were you just a, you know, a grunt and that sort of thing? So all those factors are taken into account. So you really, you can't say that your sentence in the federal system as a cyber criminal uh, is not giving, is not done relative and considered relative to the other crimes. It makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Because whether you harm somebody by killing one person or whether you harm tens or hundreds of people or thousands of people or tens of thousands of people or hundreds of thousands of people, you know, there's a broader impact, even though the other crime might not be uh, violent in nature. Right. Um, right. So, uh, so I would disagree. The, the sentencing guidelines, I think, are, are very well thought out. They're based on data. They're mm-hmm. based on data that's reviewed every year and they're adjusted accordingly. Actually, you know, I, I'm down with that. And, and and until you explained it just then, I really didn't understand that. But uh, that makes it actually makes perfect sense. It really, it really does. Not just jerking your chain on that, but it yeah. really does make sense. Um, and then, you know, if as we obviously try not to when we work on cases, the goal is not to, for it to be. Uh, you know, one-off prosecution, like it ends here, right. putting Brett Johnson in jail. You know, Brett Johnson had conspirators. Who were those conspirators? Sure. How big a player were they? Are they still doing business? Are they still harming people? Brett, here's your chance to cooperate. Don't fuck up. You fucked up. But, I, and I did. You're right. And, and you know, if I would have, if I would have played the game and did what I was supposed to do, get, taken advantage of the opportunity that was given to me on a platter I probably wouldn't have done 12 months, but I was that idiot <laughs> that decided, oh no, I'll do my own thing. <laughs> so, yeah. So typically, you know, we'd have a review process, like if somebody did cooperate uh, and usually you don't get an A for effort because I could never tell um, if your effort was half-hearted, like you might be telling some people behind my back, hey, sure. I'll call you up, you know, the feds are listening, don't say anything incriminating. But if you don't call up, you know, I'll get a dirty call. So, you know, in the end, what we would typically do, and look, in the end, the judges make their own determination of a sentence. So the government might come in and just to say what the, um, what the level of cooperation was, how, how it achieved further goals of effective law enforcement, reduced the number of future criminals and taking down perhaps an organization. Um, you know, and sometimes we'll, Typically, we'd recommend uh, uh, about a quarter off, maybe a third off. And depending, like if you put your neck on the line, it might be half off. And the judge is free to accept or ignore any of those recommendations and make their their own reductions. And, you know, I got nicer as I got older. (laughs) (laughs) So so let me ask you, did you get nicer or did they just wear you down? (laughs) No, I started, I started having a broader view of life and and, um, the impact of sentences and the level of cooperation. And when that people were really making an effort just to cut their sentences or improve their lives. And um, so I would say that earlier in my younger years, the judge used to give people more time off than I'd recommend. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, in, in by the end, you know, we were pretty much on the same page. And, you know, every, every judge is different, but you know, uh, and what I did in every case was say fully, fairly, the nature and extent of cooperation, evaluate what, if any risk you placed yourself, uh, you know, some people, 
might have gone into the witness protection program, but that's very, very hard to commit to as a, as a witness because sure. you have to cut off ties with everybody in your life. Right. They can change right. your name, they can give you a job, they give you, move you to a place you don't like and uh, because you, know, you can't risk uh, the program or so you can't talk to your parents, you can't talk to your kids, sisters and brothers. Uh, so a lot of times people just had to take their own uh, self-precaution measures. But, you know, if your involvement was such that people were out to get you, well, yeah, we, you know, we'd certainly recommend more time off. So, sure. So, yeah, there's this, uh, you know, in the end, once you're committed to crime, there's two choices, you know, to make is like, okay, one, do I go to trial and exercise my right to trial? And I always was up with that because I preferred being in trial. Than, <laughs> you know, well, you know, I remember when I worked for, uh, when I was working with the Secret Service and uh, they did this investigation over this mortgage scam that was going on. So they arrested, I, I guess it was like six or seven guys they arrested. There was a mortgage broker, a, a, an attorney, uh, some real estate agents, everything else that were rounded up. And they, they gave them each plea deals. That was what came down the pipe is, you know, if you go ahead and plea, you'll get about 18 months. And uh, only one guy took the plea at 18 months. The rest of them decided they were going to go to trial and they ended up with anywhere from four to seven years. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you got to look at the plea offers like a discount sale, right? Yeah. And, and it's kind of like, you know, the stuff like if you ever go into Costco or something, go, should I buy that now? <laughs> if you don't buy it now, it's gone two weeks after that. There's other people like willing to do what you should have done in the first place. And, right. and so a lot of people are evaluating, can they prove the case? Can they prove the case? So, so 96% of federal defendants determined that the government can't prove its case because that's the, that's the plea rate. And a lot of people say, oh, they're forced to take it because they're facing too much time. I go, sure. no, if you had a legitimate defense, um, you know, you take that chance. And there are some people doing it. And of the right. 4% to get a trial, I think nationwide, I'm talking the federal level, not state, because it's a whole different set of dynamics. Sure. Um, maybe, I, I think people I know, conviction rates of federal prosecutors are like 95 to 99%. So you're, you're an idiot. Basically, you're an idiot not to take the plea deal. Uh. Either that or you got a lot of money and, and hope that you hired the dream team like OJ did. Sure. So, so let me ask you this. You, you were a prosecutor, did you say 37 years? 37, counting five years state time, 32 with the feds. Okay. So the reason I ask that is without a doubt, <laughs> without a doubt, 37 years as a prosecutor, you developed one hell of a bullshit meter. Oh, yeah. So my, my question on that is the people that you prosecuted, what percent would you say were, were legitimately uh, remorseful about the crimes they committed at, at, you know, as, as you saw them through the sentence? And I know you didn't see them after they, they were sent out to prison, but through that entire process up until their sentence was sent off, how many do you think were actually you know, remorseful for what they did? Boy, that's a number. I'll tell you an easy number that I can give you is like 100% are remorseful they got caught. Sure. <laughs> Absolutely. I know I was. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and I think, um, you know, it's hard to say. Sometimes I always hear the uh, come to Jesus sentencing, particularly more in North Carolina than in South Florida. I found Jesus and I've changed my life and everything sure. else. Uh, you know, but the ones who like have a lot of family support and turn around and apologize, I mean, yeah, 
maybe it's sincere, maybe it's not, because okay. some of those people would still come back. So it's a, I can tell you, I've had probably, an, I could count maybe less than 10 that I know of, right? Because I saw right. them rehabilitated. It wasn't just that they just didn't violate supervised release. I mean, they actually, you know, they actually changed their lives. It's kind of like, sure. you know, you've got to change your lifestyle if you want to live longer health-wise. So uh, it's kind of like that when you decide, uh, do I want to commit a crime or not? And, and there were some cases where, like, um, you know, I had a car stop case one time where, you know, the guy was carrying a gun and he shouldn't have been, but um, I understood it because he was in a rough neighborhood. Okay. And um, so, you know, he was asked to cooperate and, and he chose not to. And I understood why because of nature, but he was really trying hard um, and working a job and raising a kid. Sure. Um, so, yeah, that was genuine. So I can that I like debate. Sometimes I enter in charge bargaining, okay. So they get okay. less time, but you know they got to do something because he's still convicted felon with a firearm. Sure, but I didn't sure. think he was going to use that firearm to commit crimes. So it sounds it sounds like Thomas O'Malley, the the federal prosecutor, had somewhat of a heart there. <laughs> well, and you have discretion, but yeah. there are supervisors that you have to explain it to. Like, you cannot just, like, do it on your own. So you'd have right. to write up a memo why you want to do this. And, and you know, for the most part, um, the supervisors trusted that you knew what you're doing because your job was, number one, to serve justice, and number two is, like, you know, don't make that person a burden on the state when they're, you know, trying to do right right uh, so it, it's definitely in a, a small minority i i could never people don't write me thank you notes for changing their lives sure, <laughs> so sure. I, I couldn't I, I couldn't really tell you no i i understand i just um you know that, that's always been a question because I, I know that when i was sentenced i was not the least bit remorseful at all <laughs> you know i was i was blaming every single person i could but me for my crimes and um you know, I wanted to act like I was sorry and everything else like that, but it was, it was just not in me at all. And, um, I just didn't know if, if that was, I mean, I suspect that's most of everybody that does that. Like you're right. I mean, when you're caught, you're very sorry you're caught. <laughs> but other than that, not so much. <laughs> yeah. The question is whether you're not, you choose that as a lesson how not to get caught again right. or whether you choose to use that as a lesson, never to put yourself in a position to be caught because you're, trying to live a law-abiding life yeah and i like uh, what you is, said it's it's a choice it's right. your choice it's your choices that put you there in front of the judge and it's your choices to whether you come back again or you try to change your life at that point point. and a lot of that involves family right like right. if you've got a supportive family um your chances are better if your family uh, consists of people who are criminals themselves you know you're likely not going to change sure. and, and one more thing i wanted to ask you about because we're running a little long here but uh you had sent me a text message and I, i'm not able to pull it up right now talking about what justice is what satisfies that concept of justice so you know you're, you have to deal with the victims the, the the harm that's caused you have to satisfy society would you like to speak to that for a second so so that the audience is on the same page with everything so you know yeah like when you go to a sentencing with um a bunch of victims in the, in the room, right? And then you've got the defendant there in the room, then you have the families there in the room with the defendant, uh, and then you've got the defense attorney making the argument to minimize the sentence, the prosecutor trying to make uh, an argument 
you know, it's going to be on the higher end and justify that. In the end, the judge has to make it. But it, it's almost like politics today. You know, when the final sentence is imposed, nobody's going to be happy with it. Right. But um, they're going to understand it. I would agree. And that's, that's one of the things I, that I view now is that if everyone's kind of unhappy, maybe by God, they got the sentence right at that point. <laughs> Certainly the one I would be less worried about is if the, the criminal is the most unhappy. I mean, I'm fine with that. <laughs> right. And, and don't forget the three purposes of sentencing, right? One is, is straight punishment. Uh, sure. Okay. Uh, look, you're being punished to be taken out of society uh, because you harmed a lot of people. Uh, or the type of harm you caused was somewhat egregious. Uh, the other is to deter you from doing it again. And there's two parts of deterrence. One is the deterrence like you're going to be deterred from harming society for the amount of time you're going to be in jail. We know that. Right. Even though you get drugs in, you know, there's still issues with phones coming in and gang members running gang operations from inside prison. But for the most part, you know, people are detained, particularly the violent criminals with guns themselves, uh, so it turns while they're in jail. But then the other purpose is to deter them from doing it again. I don't want to do this crime again. And deterrence to others. So if there's anybody thinking about committing that crime and they heard so-and-so got caught carrying a gun and because of the nature of the, the, uh, the gun possession relevant factors in the criminal history, they might end up doing 15 years. Uh, so, so that's to deter other people from doing it. And then in the end, hopefully that whole mix will – prompt them to try to rehabilitate themselves. But that's a very complicated process because it really boils down to, you know, the state of surviving in our economy. Sure. You know, you know a lot of people say, well, it's the only way I know how to make a living. And others say, okay, I'm going to make less money doing what everybody else is doing the, the hard way. Right. Thomas, I, I really can't tell you how much I thank you for coming in and, and explaining that. I, I, I don't know about anybody else out there, but I've certainly learned a lot from, from what you talked about today. Thank you so much. If, if someone needs to contact you either to ask for your, for your, for your opinion, for your, for help with their protecting themselves for media contacts, because you are that guy that knows exactly what needs to be complained about so, or on frozen pie, how can they go ahead and contact you? So uh, they go on frozenpie.net. I've got um, I've got a Google Voice number because I screen my calls, and uh, they can do that. But if they're on LinkedIn, so I can see who they are, uh, mess direct message uh, on LinkedIn, and then uh, frozen underline pie, frozen underline pii on Twitter, and that's my handle at frozen underline pie. Uh, they can just DM me there um, because I need to authenticate people and and in my own way before I, you know, start talking to crackpots. Sure. So. <laughs> Thomas O'Malley, you are an amazing person and I, I am proud. I really am. I'm proud to call you friend. Thank you so much for coming on Anglerfish. Well, thank you, Brad. I think uh, you and I are now partners in cybercrime defense. So I, I think we are. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, we give different perspectives uh, and uh, neither of us are bullshit artists. So that works out well. There you go. Thank you so much, Thomas. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Brad. You take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Anglerfish Podcast. I appreciate it. If you like it, please subscribe and drop me a line saying hello. Hello is always good. You can reach me direct at brettjohnson at anglerfish.com. That's brett, B-R-E-T-T, Johnson, J-O-H-N-S-O-N, at anglerfish, A-N-G-L-E-R-P-H-I-S-H dot com. 
Other than saying hello, feel free to email questions, comments, concerns, or even show suggestions. I respond to every single email I get. And please, tell your friends about us. Rate and review Anglerfish wherever you can. As Anglerfish continues to navigate the dark waters of our online lives, remember, stay safe, stay secure, and stay vigilant.